Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. More in darkness, no more in night. Happiness, oh, inside. Pray the Lord, let's all the light. Pray the Lord, I saw the light.
through page 10. It's talking about rain here. It's talking about the outpouring of his spirit. Power in the blood, power in the blood, 
So thank you, Father, for the gift of music. Amen. And thank you, Father, for the gift of the seventh day, a day of rest, fellowship, and worship. Amen. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the fulfillment of prophecy and for the word that we're going to receive today. We ask you, Father, to help us to understand this word that will be delivered today. Please help us to not misunderstand anything, but rather to fully understand, and not just an outward understanding, but a true and deep and sincere and full understanding. Please give us this understanding, Father, for we ask for it. And the Holy Scriptures proclaim that if we ask for it in your name, that you would give it to us. He wasn't talking about money or cars or careers or fame, but he was talking about spiritual things. Amen. And we ask, Father, for these spiritual things, more wisdom, more discernment, and more understanding. Pray, Father, your will be done in this service, that you be glorified in it, and your people edify your will, Father, and the movement of your spirit unhindered in this place and in our lives. Without end, in the name of Jesus, we claim. So be it. Amen. Praise Amen. Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let me see. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Amen. Go to the book of Luke, Dr. Luke. Uh-huh. Let's see what the good doctor wrote. Amen. Lucas, yes. Very cool. So I've just changed that in the Alpha and Omega Bible to where anywhere is where it says Luke, that is Lucas. That was his name. His name was Lucas. Somewhere down the line, some English person say, let's just call him Luke. Luke. But to me, even though, you know, it might sound legalistic, but to me, we shouldn't change scripture. Amen. If his name is Lucas, we should call him Luke. As far as what the scriptures say. Amen. Amen. Some minor things, a little thing, it has nothing to do with our salvation. Unless you're changing the scripture, then yes, it has to do with our salvation. Amen. Let's call him good old Dr. Lucas. And we know who we're talking about. Luke 6. I know we're supposed to honor the king with a button-up shirt and tucked-in shirt. So excuse me, I just burn up when I get preaching. (laughs) I just get burning up. About to get some heat. Amen. Praise the Lord. For the record, today's date in the Roman Catholic calendar is April the 14th, 2018 A.D., in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in God's calendar, it is the 28th day of the 13th month. Amen. 28th day, 13th month. 
today's topic is don't be over judgmental. Don't be over judgmental. Notice I'm not saying don't don't ever judge. Babylon teaches that you should never judge, and we're going to look at some of the scriptures they use for that. And it is important to not be over judgmental. Amen. Luke 6, starting in verse 30. We're going to go from 30 to verse 45 to help you with your notes. You can jot down Luke 30, I mean Luke 6, verse 30 to 45. God willing, we'll go over all these scriptures. Amen. Praise the Lord. Verse 30 to 45. Verse 30 says, Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. So some people use verse 30 to say that we should give to the drug dealers, the users, the people that would use us, and the people that's going to take your money to buy drugs, and the alcoholic, and so forth, that you ought to give your money to anybody and everybody without exception. That's what a lot of people say, especially the homeless, especially the alcoholic, especially the drug dealer, especially the lost person that's not even trying to live for the Lord. They would use this to say, you're supposed to give them anything they ask. Well, that's what it sounds like it's saying in the letter of the law, in the letter of what it says, that there's the letter A, the letter B, the letter C. But what is the spirit of the law here? What is Jesus really saying? To understand what he's really saying, you have to look at verse 31 to treat others the same way you want them to treat you. That's the golden rule, what we call the golden rule. Treat others the way we want to be treated. Amen. So in the context, if I'm hungry and I ask for food, I would want people to give me food, right? If I was hungry, if I was in need, I would want people to help me if I ask for it. And in the same way, if somebody else is in true need, we should help them as well. That's the law of love. All the commandments is about loving God and loving people. And the law of love says to help people in need when they sincerely and truly need it. You're a human being, they're a human being. Help them. Amen. That's what Matthew 25 is all about when it talks about at the white throne judgment that Jesus would say to the people on the left that they did not help people. They did not feed people, clothe people, visit people, help people. Amen. But to the righteous, he said, you did do this. You did it to them. You did it to me. Amen. This is not saying, it is not saying that every time in your life that you should give every person without any exception. If somebody says, give me $50 to where I can go buy illegal drugs and get high out of my mind, does Jesus want you to give that person the drug money 
absolutely not. Amen. If a person says, give me a gun that I may blow my brains out, does Jesus want you to do that because they asked for it? No way. This verse says, if anybody asks for anything, give it to them. But that's not what Jesus was saying. Amen. Amen. That was not his spirit. Death and murder, illegal drugs, or if somebody says, give me $100 where I can pay this prostitute. Are you supposed to give it to them? No. Amen. And neither should you give money to people who you know are spending $200 a month, $200 a month on cigarettes. Or $200 a month on pot, or $200 a month on liquor and alcohol. Why should you help that person and fund their addiction and their sin? That is not God's will. Amen. But what it really is, is helping people sincerely in need. And when it says, whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Does that mean we should let anybody and everybody without exception at all times run over us, steal from us, not call the police? No, that's not what it means. What it means in the context of all scripture, because there are other scriptures that talk about that, says if your brother sues you at the law, give it to him. So considering that verse, as well as this verse, and considering God's spirit, what he really wants from all of us, is that if somebody thinks it belongs to them, this ain't talking about stealing. It's talking about somebody that really believes it belongs to them and they take it away from us or they sue us or they take it. Yeah, yeah, in that case, we should let them have it if they truly do think it's theirs. Even though it's not, we should let it, just let bygones be bygones and just let them have it. The reason for that is that we are to be walking examples upon this earth. We are to be witnesses of love, mercy, grace, understanding, compassion. And if that person really thinks it's theirs, they may be wrong about it. But if we come against them and sue them or continue in the legal fight and cause a lot of chaos and trouble over it, it's more trouble than what it's worth. And because they really think that it's theirs, when we try to get it back from them, they're going to think we're stealing, even though we're not. They're going to think we're stealing. And therefore, we become bad examples to them. Amen? I'm not saying, though, and neither is God saying, that if they know that they're in the room, that you should live and get away with it. No. If they're in the room... Go ahead and sue them. Amen? Go ahead and do whatever you need to do. If they know that they're in the wrong, don't let them get away with it. God does not expect us to allow people to run over us and allow people to steal from us. It's different according to the context, according to are they sincerely believing in theirs or are they really and truly purposely lying and stealing cheating. So it, it depends on the context. You can't just give a blanket statement 
for every situation in the world like Babylon thinks you can. Everything must be considered in the context of what's really going on. So then verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those that love them. Amen? Sinners love one another. Homosexuals love one another. The drug addict loves the other drug addict. The lost person loves the other lost person. They're great buddies, so forth. They love one another. Loving somebody that loves you right back, what credit is that and how how difficult or how easy that is, amen? That's nothing. That's easy to do. Even dogs do that, amen? Even dogs love the other dogs, amen, sometimes, most of the time. But then... Verse 33, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But if you lean to those from whom you, who you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lean to sinners in order to receive back the same. But love your enemies and do good and lean, expecting nothing in return and your reward would be great, and you'd be sons of the Most High, but he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So what it's saying here is sometimes we should give to people who are poor, who we know they can't give it back, just give it to them, people who are in need, but they might not be our true brothers. Says, love your enemies. So they might not be true followers of Jesus. And in some cases, they may have even come against. And this is where it gets difficult to bless people and help people that have actually come against you. But it's not impossible if you truly love people, if you truly have compassion for people. Even your enemy, if you see them hungry, if you remember that they are human beings, and what if you was hungry? So we need to be people of compassion for both the lost and the saved, not just the saved only, not just people in our congregation and not just true believers, but even the people of lost, the lost people, amen. And this is why we need to be doing a ministry of distributing clothes here, which we do. We offer it to people. We don't require that somebody fill out paperwork to prove how much money they make or or ID or address that they have to live in this town like a lot of these agencies do and a lot of the food banks do. We don't require any of that. You come in the door, you want clothes, you can have the clothes. Amen. And if we got the food, the extra food to give, you take that too. You may be lost, you may be a sinner, you may be a homosexual, you may be a prostitute, but there's no requirements to come in here and receive food or clothes. That's loving your enemies. You can be an atheist, you can be a Muslim. You can come in here as a Muslim, receive food, 
from this ministry. We save clothes, no questions asked, and no preaching, no judging, no condemning. This is a place of refuge. This is an embassy. Amen. This is an embassy, a place of refuge, a place for people to come for help and to seek the Lord and to learn the truth, not a place to come and have fingers pointed at. Amen. We have to be people of compassion and present the people the opportunity to learn, the opportunity to receive the flyers. When they come in for the clothes, they're going to get the flyers too. Amen. Whether they want it or not, <laughs> here's some flyers. I know that you would disagree, but all we ask is that you just read them, examine the scriptures, pray over them. But I'm not going to stand there and preach to them. I'm not going to tell them, this is the doctrine, this is the doctrine, this is why you're wrong, this is why you're wrong. But I'm just going to simply say, please take these flyers with you. I know you would disagree, but we just simply ask that you read it, consider the scriptures, examine the scriptures, and pray. Leave it at that. Amen. I don't want them to feel like they're being preached at or that I'm pointing the fingers at them, but rather that here is another help. I've helped you in this one way. Now let me help you with this. But I only do it as a seed and not preaching at them. Amen. So this is why it's talking about loving your enemies. And you know what? Sometimes. If a drunk, alcoholic, or drug addict comes up to me off the streets and asks for a dollar, asks for some change, and I know where it's going, I know what they're going to do with it. You know what? There's some times that I say, yeah, here, here's this dollar. Sometimes even $5. And I'm not saying that out of pride or to gloat or to brag. But I'm saying it as an example to you that sometimes, even though overall we're not supposed to help people in their sins, but sometimes we just got to say, you know what? This person may be going through withdrawal symptoms. They might have a headache. They're struggling, and they're just asking for a little help. They're addicted. And it's extremely difficult, extremely difficult to overcome those addictions. Amen? Extremely difficult. They cannot just snap their finger or say one prayer, and then it's just resolved immediately. What if that person is already on the road to recovery? What if they're already praying? What if they're already seeking but just having a difficult time that day. We don't know what happened five minutes ago, 30 minutes ago, two hours ago before they come up to us. We don't know what happened in the middle of the night or yesterday or what happened when they were a child. We don't know their background, where they're coming from. Sometimes I'm like, here, thank you, man. And then there's other times the Holy Ghost leads me to be like, absolutely not. Amen? 
I think I feel like that, again, you cannot put a blanket statement, but rather you have to be led by the Holy Ghost in each situation. Amen. Look at verse 36. Be merciful. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Sometimes we just have to show mercy and grace. Amen. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Whatever measurement that you measure with, whatever standard that you judge with, Besides how you're going to be judged by other people and by God. If you are judging everybody in an over-judgmental way, an over-condemning way, and never showing mercy, never showing mercy, never showing grace, never showing understanding, never giving anybody a benefit of a doubt, it's going to come back to you that way. People are going to treat you that way, and God is going to treat you that way because you deserve it, because you have not shown mercy or grace or pardon to anybody for any reason if you're overjudgmental, overcondemning. In verse 39, he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil or student is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. After he has been fully trained. Amen. None of us have been fully trained yet. We're still being trained. God is training us. I'm training you. Under Jesus Christ, God is training you through me. He's training you through his own spirit in you. He's training you through the scriptures, through prayer, through fasting, through life experiences. We are students of Christ, disciples of Christ, pupils of Christ, and of one another. Amen. And after we are fully trained, we will be like our rabbi, like our teacher, Christ Jesus. And in the same manner, people on the street, people we see, people we see in the store, and even people in Babylon, they're not fully trained and we're not fully trained. Amen? None of us have yet fully obtained where we need to be. None of us. So even though Babylon is full of wickedness and false doctrine and lies and foolishness, sometimes we also need to remember we was once one of those, amen. We once were 
like them, lost, blind, ignorant. And we ourselves are not perfect yet either. Amen. There's a time to judge. There is. There is a time to condemn. There is. There's a time for rebuke. There's a time for holding back, refraining. A time not to hug. A time to not caress. A time to disfellowship. But there's also a time for mercy and for grace. And to not be overjudgmental and overcondemning as well. We need the right balance. And a lot of people have a difficult time finding that right balance. And it does take time to find that right balance. But some people have been supposedly serving the Lord for a long, long time, and they still not found that balance yet. When to judge, when to condemn, when to rebuke, and when not to, and when not to be overjudgmental and not to be overcondemning. Amen. Some people just love to point the finger. There are people, some people, that love to point the finger every time they can. Every chance, every opportunity, every opportunity they have, and they're just seeking another opportunity to point the finger again. I've met people like that. Very frustrating. They're not a pleasant to be around. They are not pleasant to be around. There are people I have met. You may have met them as well, maybe, that are just wanting to point the finger at anybody and everybody. Amen. Verse 41, why do you look at the speck, talking about a small speck, that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Meaning, why are you looking at somebody else's smaller sin when you've got a huge sin in your own eye, in your own heart, your own mind, your own soul, your own life? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye. You try to correct them or you try to help them. When you yourself do not see the log larger that is in your own eye. You don't even see your own huge sin. You hypocrite, Jesus says. You hypocrite. First, Take the log out of your own eye, deal with your own sin, repent of your own sins, get your own life right first, and then, then you will see clearly to take the speck out that is in your brother's eye. Notice Jesus is not saying you should never judge or ever never correct anyone. He didn't, he's not saying that. What he's saying is, get your own life straight first. Don't be a hypocrite about it. Amen? Get your own sins taken care of before you start worrying about other people's sins. Then, once you do that, once you do that, yes, you can help your brother with their sins. Yes, you can and should. Amen. 
But why be over-condemning and over-judgmental, always pointing to point, point the finger at everybody else when you still got things you got to deal with first? Verse 43, for there is no good tree which produces corrupted fruit, nor on the other hand a corrupted tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good, and the evil out of his evil heart or treasure brings forth what is evil, for his heart speaks, his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Now, there are exceptions to this. Because there are the Shriners, they have the Shriners Hospital that helps children. They do a lot of good. But it's an evil tree, an evil roots. They are Muslims. They are Freemasons, and all their symbols of the Shriners are very demonic symbols. These are evil, evil, evil people. And the Vatican claims to be good, and, and they may even have charities and food banks and stuff like that. And the Lutheran Church has food banks, and the Baptist Church has food banks, and some of these churches give out clothes and help the poor and help people with their electric bill and visit the prisoners, and do everything on the list of Matthew 25. But they're Babylon, they're evil, they're lost, but yet they're producing good fruit because the devil always mixes some truth and some goodness in with all the evil as a bait and as a false appearance. Remember that the white horse of Revelation 6 out of the four horses, the first seal is a white horse. White is the color symbolically representing holiness and righteousness and peace. But it has a heart of war. It has a false appearance. as a hypocritical appearance. So it can appear to be a good tree, but not bearing forth. It may even bear forth good fruit in the short term. But in the long term, those groups are bearing forth bad fruit long term. They are. They may help somebody and be looking like they're bearing forth good fruit from an evil tree. That is the appearance. That is the outward appearance. Just like Jesus called the Pharisees white washed tombs, meaning they were dead tombs. They were uh, bodies that had no Holy Ghost in them. They were, these were walking zombies, the Pharisees were. And he said, you're white washed tombs, which means you have appearance of being washed. You have an appearance that you are religious, that you're a Christian, that you know God, that you know the Scripture. But inwardly, he said, you are ravishing woods. A white washed tomb is a tomb that has been washed. They have appearance of being washed, but they're not washed. They're dirty inside. So even though they appear to be producing good fruit, just like the fig tree had leaves on it, but these groups 
long term, despite all the good that they're producing, is producing more bad long term because they're deceiving the people. You can help somebody in the flesh, but kill that person, murder that person in the soul. The wicked and the lost people do it all the time. The wicked love one another, hug one another, caress one another, cry on each other's shoulders, support one another, help one another, get each other out of jail, come to your rescue at a time of trouble, come to your rescue at 3 o'clock in the morning. Lost people do that among themselves. And they can help you in the flesh, but murder you in the soul. Amen. So when Jesus says that no good fruit comes from a bad tree, he is talking really long term and what's really going on behind the scenes. He's not saying that they will never have a false appearance because he did teach they would have a false appearance. Amen. He's not saying that they that they won't look like that they're going to have good fruit or pretend like it, but in sincerity and in the spiritual realm and in the long term, then definitely evil produces evil and good produces good. And what he's really saying, his point is this, is if you are part of the good tree, of life, of Jesus Christ, and you're really a member of the church of the tree of life, then you need to be producing good fruit. And if the laws can help people, then you should be helping people because you're truly of the good tree and not just false appearance, right? So if they can help and lean and support one another, then we too and help people. Amen. Now, let's go to Matthew 7, because that is a verse that the lost people use all the time and Babylon uses all the time. Matthew 7, verse 1. This verse they use constantly to say, don't judge me. Don't judge me, man, they always say. And what they're really saying is, be quiet and let me sin in peace. Amen. That's the translation of it. When they say, don't judge me, no man can judge me, only God can judge me, what they're really saying is, shut up, let me sin in peace. That is what they're saying. And this is one Bible verse that every sinner knows. Even the atheist knows it. Even people that don't go to church, even people that don't believe in God, and even people that do believe in God, but they don't go to church, they don't even try to live for him at all, but they will always quote this verse every time that anybody tries to help them or correct them in the truth or lead them to holiness. Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. So they only, they only use the first three words. The Bible says, Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge. That's all they know of it. 
they don't, especially don't know verse 2 and 3 and on to the rest of the chapter. Amen. But do not judge that you would, so that you would not be judged. In other words, with what measure you measure with will be measured back to you, right? If you compare that verse to what we just read in Luke. Again, not using one verse theology, but comparing verse with verse with verse. That's exactly what it's meaning here then, ain't it? With what measure you measure with, that'll be measured back with you. So it's, it is how you judge will be judged, you will be judged back. Verse 2, for in the way you judge, amen? Amen? Verse 2 confirms that we should compare verse 1 with Luke. Amen? Verse 2, in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it would be measured to you. It's not saying don't judge at all, is it? It's not. It's only talking about how you judge. Are you being over-condemning, over-judgmental? That is what it's talking about. Verse 3, why do you look at the speck? that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the law that is in your own eye. It's talking about hypocritical judging. When you have sin in your own life, but you're trying to correct everybody else, you're just trying to point the finger at everybody else. Verse 4, oh, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold the law that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Amen? And do not give what is holy to dogs, talking about lost people. That's what it's talking about. And do not throw your pearls before swine. Again, talking about lost people. Or this is what will happen if you do that. They will trample them trample your pearls and trample what is holy under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Amen. And then ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And everyone who asks receives and who seeks find and he to him who knocks will be opened. Why does it say this in verse 7 and 8, right after verse 6? Because what it's saying is this. If you want the truth, if you want the Alpha and Omega Bible, if you want the most accurate Bible, if you want to know the different things about, if you want the meat of God and, and hidden mysteries, seek. Seek these things. Seek the truth and you will find it that we are not to just give this to just anybody and everybody without exception. We have to be careful where to witness and to who and how. This is why I get so upset with the street preachers. Everybody so idolizes the street preachers, they think that every, almost everybody 
thinks that the street preachers are doing the work of Jesus. They're going out there in the streets, talking to the lost, talking to the homeless, trying to get the lost saved, and everybody just loves these street preachers and idolizes them. But what is the street preacher doing? They are out there shouting to the lost, to a people that are swine and dogs, that's not me, this is Jesus speaking, who do not want this knowledge, do not want this salvation, do not want this Bible or this message or this truth, and they spit in your face, they trample it underfoot, and they totally disregard the holy and cast it out as being wicked. Street preaching is foolishness. Jesus and the disciples never did it in the way that these street, so-called street preachers are doing it these days. Nothing like it. What Jesus and the apostles did is they went to locations that were set aside for sharing religious opinions, theological opinions, and opinions about the meaning of life and the meaning of Scripture. There were places, it is historical fact, it is well documented, it is well acknowledged, it is well known that in Jesus' day, And in the day and time of the apostles and disciples and even the prophets of the Old Testament, there was places where you know that that's where you go if you want to hear somebody's opinion. That's where they went. That's where they talked. The places where they knew people were looking for the truth. They were wanting to hear the people's different opinions and interpretations. That's where they went. They also went to the synagogues where, again, people were coming to hear and seek and to learn and to worship. And they also went to people they knew, people that the apostles related to, to other people that were in contact with them, and to people that came directly up to them. All of those situations, again, people that were seeking. They were not out there shouting to a people that did not want to hear it. Even when the Pharisees and other wicked people was confronting Jesus and the apostles, they came to Jesus. Jesus didn't go to them. Jesus did not go seeking out these Pharisees, to call them hypocrites to their faith. He was preaching to the people that wanted to hear the preaching. And the Pharisees saw it and came to the crowds and came to Jesus. Jesus did not go to them to condemn them and point the finger at them. The Pharisees came first. And we should be careful. These are the instructions of Jesus. This is Jesus talking in Matthew 7. That we are not to cast pearls before the swine. Now, again, 
You have to use discernment. You have to be led by the Holy Ghost. This does not mean that we can never, ever, ever witness. Because the fact is, if you're lost, you are a dog. All of the lost are dogs, spiritually, symbolically. But the swine are even worse than that. There are some people more wicked than other people, and that's the truth, and you know it. There are some people that are more wicked than others. And we do have the parable of the sower, where they were sowing everywhere, everywhere, both good ground and bad ground, hard ground and thorny ground. So, yeah, we are to evangelize and distribute seeds here and there, throw out a flyer in every direction. Now, being on the radio where I know that everybody that tunes in is lost or think they're saved but lost, and if we do it was to do TV, it would be the same, and when we distribute clothes, it's the same, and when we put an ad in the paper, it's the same, or when even the website is the same. We have to evangelize to the lost. How can you lead, give them the truth? You know, how is anybody going to get saved if we don't evangelize to the lost? Even the scriptures say he did not come to save the righteous, but the lost. Amen. So we do have to cast our pearls before all of the lost, all of the world. But we also have to restrain from that at times as well. Amen. We do have to use discernment, use wisdom, use caution, use common sense. Be clever about it. Be wise about it. But let's take this back in context again now. He's saying that people need to be seeking. And when they come and seek, but you are to give it to them. But let's take it back in context of even about judging and hypocritical judging and trying to remove sin from people when we have sin in our own life. In that whole entire context, there's a new thing that opens up to us, a spiritual me, a spiritual understanding. And that is that we are not to judge hypocritically, be over-judging, over-condemning. When people are seeking that we are to give it to them, amen, but yet at the same time, not giving it freely to everybody. Again, we're to help people with money, emotional, spiritual help, financial help, any kind of help that we can give people. If they come to us, ask for it, and we do need to be planting seeds throughout the whole world and trying to save the lost through evangelizing and witnessing, yes. At the same time, not being overjudgmental, overcondemning, not having an overjudgmental, overcondemning spirit, but a loving spirit, a compassionate spirit, a spirit that does want to get the truth out there, a spirit that does want to point the way for people, not being overjudgmental, but at the same time, 
along the way, along this path, along the path of distributing the truth, along the path of evangelizing and setting seeds, that we will eventually come across somebody that it just all of a sudden the Holy Ghost or even just common sense or wisdom says to you, that person, do not approach. That person, do not give them a flyer. That car, do not put a flyer on. That person, do not witness to, don't waste your time. Amen. And some of it is common sense. You don't just go up to somebody who has 666 tattooed on their body, amen, and think that you're going to lead them to Christ. It's very clear that they are a Satanist. Very clear to, to you. Sometimes, you know, they don't have to have 666. You know I'm exaggerating there. But you know my point is sometimes if they've got a barcode tattooed on their neck, and I've seen that many times, leave that person alone. That is a swine. That is a person that if they're going to seek, let them seek in private. Let them go to the Bible. Let them email you. Let them call you. Let them come to you. Let them walk up to you rather than you, up to them. Amen? Amen. There's a lot to this. There's a whole lot to this. Amen? Let's go to John 7. John chapter 7, verse 22. John 7, verse 22. We're going to do verse 22 through 24. John 7, verse 22 through 24. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it is from Moses, but from the forefathers. And on the seventh day, you circumcise a man. They were circumcising men on the rest day of the seventh day. And if a man receives circumcision on the seventh day so that the law of Moses would not be broken, are you angry with me? Because I made an entire man well. I healed somebody on the seventh day. They were angry, and they accused him of breaking the Sabbath. Just because he healed somebody on the seventh day, Jesus was like, hey, you circumcised people under the requirement of the law of Moses, and I'm healing somebody. You're tearing the flesh apart. I'm healing them. Amen. Why do you condemn me? Why are you angry at me for doing this? You're doing a work of the law. How come I can't do a work of love? Amen. 
Verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Right there, Jesus said, you can judge. Amen? You can judge, but you need to judge with righteous judgment. Amen? They were judging him hypocritically. Amen? A lot of times we use verse 24, and some people would think that when it says, do not judge according to appearance, they think it means by clothing or tattoos or hair or the way somebody looks, appearance in that way. That's not what Jesus really is saying. There's nothing about looks here. It's more like he was saying, without knowing all the facts, that you should not judge according to how it appears to be of the situation. They thought he was doing wrong without knowing his heart. They didn't have all the facts of his heart, his intent, his spirit, his soul, who he was and the righteousness of love. They always went by the letter of the law and not by love at all. When we apply verse 24 in the right way, if we're going to judge people, we need to judge with all the facts. We need to judge in correct doctrine, for one thing, correct doctrine, not by traditional doctrine or traditional legalistic beliefs, legalistic teachings or what we assume to be right and wrong, but by correct doctrine, for one thing, but also with also a true understanding of the circumstance, this true understanding of the situation. And a lot of people, that's where they go wrong in both those areas, doctrine and that people are judging without really knowing the circumstances. Amen. A lot of times people judge the homeless because we know that a lot of homeless, they are drug addicts and they are, uh, a lot of them are alcoholics. And so a lot of people tend to judge every homeless person based on the majority. But the truth is, there are some people out there on the street because they just hit rock-hard bottom financially. Sometimes it's women that their abusive husbands kick them out on the street, kick these women out on the street. Sometimes it's because people lost their job in an urban area where it's difficult to find another job and there's a lot of competition for jobs, such as Chicago, where the economy is absolutely horrible and the community is filled with violence and sinfulness and worldliness and carnality. There's no good example. There is no righteousness in the land of Chicago. There's no good mentors, no good examples. The city is run by Democrats and they are running that city into the ground. Same thing, true of Detroit, New York City, 
San Francisco, Los Angeles, a lot of these urban areas all run by Democrats, and all of them run to the ground, and all of them horrible economies, and tons and tons and tons of homeless people who are caught in the circumstances of the Democrat Party. And there are victims of the Democrat Party, and there are victims of the world, of society, of hopelessness, of drugs, of prostitution, of sin, and a million other things that they're victims of. Don't get me wrong. Everybody has to take responsibility. Responsibility for their circumstances. Responsibility for their own sins. There's no excuse for sin. But sometimes we need to understand that bad things happen to people beyond their circumstances. There's a lot of people guilty of everything on the streets. But then there's also the true victims. There are the people that fell under bad circumstances beyond their control. Those are those people out there as well. Amen. And let's take it even another step, the prostitute. Absolutely, the prostitute is in adultery. That prostitute is committing abominations, horrible sins, defiling their bodies, defiling their soul, their spirit, their life. Absolutely. But what happened to that person as a child? What happened to that person in their teenage years and in their young adult years and even later in life that brought them to that situation? There are horrible influences in this world, and some people are literally kidnapped at a young age and sold into prostitution and at a young age as a child or a teenager that they are forced into prostitution. That is a reality. It happens a lot. And it's beyond their control and is of no choice to them. This is reality. Then, after years of forced prostitution beyond their control, they are already corrupted and defiled in the way that they think, the way they behave. In every area of their life is corrupted and defiled, and they don't know nothing else. And then they continue in that habit even after they escape, if they escape. Because you know that their, their pimp doesn't let them go when they turn 18. Their pimp doesn't just let them go when they turn 21. They are still under control of that abusive, manipulating, oppressive pimp that owns them. And if they leave, they will be killed. They will be murdered. And they even say, I will murder your sister or your mom 
or your dad or someone or your boyfriend or your husband if you leave this life of prostitution. They threaten them with their life and the life of their loved ones. God knows all of these situations. We don't. We see a woman or a man on the street selling their body and immediately we're pointing the finger knowing it is a sin but not knowing any other circumstance at all. Not knowing anything about that person, where they came from, their background, where they're going five minutes from now or tomorrow. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that person is going to go to heaven just by mercy and grace and just because of their circumstances. They've got to repent. But that is why there is a second resurrection. Amen? If there was no second resurrection, there would be no hope for such a person at all. No hope for such a person. They can't just get a free ticket to heaven just because of their background and their situation, just because they are caught in that life. They have to repent but they also have to be delivered. Amen. And how are they going to repent until there is an escape, a way of escape made for that person? Second resurrection is the beauty and the perfection of God's plan of salvation. Amen. The second resurrection, it will be the government of God. And God will know the circumstance. He will know the situation. He will know, and justice will prevail. Jesus will not allow it. In that second resurrection, he will not allow that pen to control that person. And that person will be delivered and given the opportunity to not only learn of the truth and receive the truth, but a, a way of justice for them to make escape from that oppression and that bondage. But until then, in this life, sometimes we see people in sin and we don't know the situation. And the same is true about a lot of homosexuals. Yes, homosexuality is an abomination unto the Lord. It is a major, major sin. But what a lot of people don't understand is that almost every homosexual was molested as a child, had no good mentor, had over-oppressive mothers, absent fathers, abuse, and then, of course, the influence of society and people in their lives magazines, websites, music, TV, Hollywood, and through everything, and the devil himself and his league of demons, and through everything, that person is just as much in bondage and oppression as what the example about prostitution is. Yes, it is a sin, and yes, I condemn that sin, and yes, they must repent. But we must also consider the circumstance 
behind the scenes of everything that has happened to that person that is invisible to us that we do not know or understand or comprehend, but God does, and there is the second resurrection. Amen? Let's continue in Scripture here. Let's go to John 8, verse 1. And when you turn to John 8 in the Alpha and Omega Bible, you're going to notice that the first verse of John 8 is verse 12. But then you read the note above John 8. Above John 8, it says, notice, John 7, 53 to John 8, verse 11, that whole section there, actually does not belong in John. It belongs in the book of Luke, and it should go after Luke 21, 38, where I have included it where it really should go. So to find John 8, verse 1, we have to go to Luke 21, 38. So let's go to Luke 21, 38, unless you're reading from anything. If you're not reading from the Alpha and Omega Bible, then you can just simply turn to John 8, verse 1, if you're not reading in Alpha and Omega. If you are reading in Alpha and Omega, you have to turn, turn to Luke 21 and go to the end of the chapter of Luke 21. And then you will find the scriptures that are traditionally put in John but does not belong to John. These are verses written by Luke. By Lucas. So then, John 8, verse 1 says, here in the book of Luke, John 8, verse 1 says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him again. He went to the place where people gathered to learn in the temple, and all the people were coming to him. Amen? And he sat down and began to teach them. Amen? They wanted to be taught. Amen? Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman. They came to him. And they brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court of the temple, not an actual court court, but court of the temple, they said to Jesus, to him, Rabbi, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act we caught her. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were trying to trap him. They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. There's no way of knowing, no way of knowing. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up, stood up, said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Excellent, excellent, excellent reply. Amen? He didn't say, let her go, let her get away with her sin, don't punish her, don't, you know. He actually said, 
keep the law. You, you, you know, basically, y'all say, this is what the law says, stoner, stoner. But let the one of you that is without sin cast the first stone. Amen. Amen. In verse 8, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. He's writing something on the ground here. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, the elders, and he was left alone, just him and this woman, and the woman, where she was in the center of the court. And Standing back up, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did not one condemn you? He said, she said, not one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. From now on, sin no more. Amen. Now, a lot of people use this verse to actually claim that by mercy and grace alone, without repentance, you can make it to heaven. A lot of people use this verse for that, that false doctrine. To say all you got to do is just depend on the love of God. By mercy and by grace, you're just going to make it into heaven. And if that's the case, then there's going to be nobody in the lake of fire. Amen. By that thinking, by that way of thinking, there would nobody be cast into the lake of fire. But we know the scripture does talk about people being cast into the lake of fire to perish and be judged and uh, sentenced as punishment. Amen. Yes, he showed her a lot of mercy and a lot of grace. Absolutely. But what you got to understand is that in the law of Moses, it wasn't just the woman that was to be stoned, but the man too. And not only that, but you had to have two or three witnesses. Now, they say they caught her, but where was the man? Where, why did they bring only the woman? And if it was adultery, wasn't he guilty as well? Well, how come they were only bringing one person? Amen. So they wasn't following all of the letter of the law. And what was their purpose? Was their purpose really and truly justice? Was their purpose really and truly uh, righteousness and keeping the law? Absolutely not. Their purpose was to trap him of how they thought he might respond. That was their purpose. They had an evil fruit plan. They had an evil purpose, an evil mindset. Amen. And he knew her circumstances. Now, yeah, she did sin. As far as we know, she did sin. In fact, the way he said, sin no more, definitely means that she was guilty. He didn't say you did not sin. He said, don't sin anymore. 
So, yes, she was guilty, but he knew the circumstance. She might have been set up. Amen? Very likely. Possible. She may have been set up. And even if she wasn't set up for the purpose of bringing her to him, to set him up, she still may have been talked into it, even if it wasn't a setup about the whole concept. Maybe she was just talked into it by this guy. Or a million other circumstances that Jesus knew. Jesus knew the background. We don't. We don't know the background, but Jesus did, and he didn't judge by appearance of way it seemed to be. He judged by righteousness, a righteous judgment, having to know, he didn't know the background, the situation of what was going on here about them and their purpose and what had happened with her as well. Amen. And notice he did tell her to not sin again. But he is not letting her go 100% without any judging, without any condemnation. Amen. He is correcting her in a sense by telling her, do not repeat it. Do not do this again. Jesus could have been over-condemning, over-judgmental, but instead he judged knowing the entire situation and with righteous judgment. By the letter of the law, even if she had been talked into it, or even if it had been a setup, by the letter of the law, he was supposed to stop her and not even use this tactic of the person without sin to do it. By the letter of the law, he should have told every one of them to do it. But in the spirit of the law, why are you doing this? Why are you trying to remove something out of her eye when you all, every one of you, are hypocrites, right? Mm -hmm. He did apply that principle of why are you all trying to remove this out of her eye when you all, every one of you, have a beam in your own eye? That's exactly what he was doing when he said that, the first one without sin, just on her. Amen? Amen. Now let's go to Romans 14. Romans chapter 14. Let's read this whole chapter here. Romans 14, now this chapter is used by all of Babylon or a lot of Babylon to try to teach that we don't have to keep the seventh day, that we can keep the first day or the second or any day of our choosing 
and they use it to condemn people for keeping the seventh day. But this chapter says absolutely nothing about the seventh day. The word seventh day and the word holy day and the word Sabbath never appears in this entire chapter. But yet they will always turn to this chapter every time that they're trying to condemn you for keeping the seventh day. So let's read this chapter. Romans 14, verse 1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So talk about vegetarians. He does call them weak. It is a weakness. It is not full maturity. It is not what God wants. It is a weakness. But he says that the person who has faith may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only, and the one who eats the meats is not to be guarded with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for Theos has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So what is really saying here is the person that is a vegetarian, they've got reasons, right? They got their own opinion, they got their own reasoning, and it's not an evil intent, right? It's not an evil heart, it's not an evil intent. They're not trying to hurt anybody or anything, they're not trying to break any law or any there any sinfulness or anything like that. They're just weak in the mentality, in their mentality. They, they see a face on the animal, and they think it's cruelty to kill that animal, not understanding the will of the Lord, not understanding the purpose of the cattle, not understanding the curse of man, that the animals were cursed right along with us, and the ground was cursed, and the sky was cursed, and everything was cursed, and this is part of the curse, and we cannot escape the curse, and we should not try to escape the curse. We're opposed to eat the animals. But at that same time, it's not like that they're committing adultery or homosexuality or anything like that. It's just that they're weak in understanding the will of the Lord and stuff like that. This is not something to disfellowship over or to point fingers at them over. It's something to rather we should pray for that person to grow in the understanding. Amen. We should pray for that person to grow in understanding of God's will and of the way of life and the reality of life. And a pastor can counsel with such a person, and we can mention it in sermons and stuff like that to help that person grow and learn and so forth. But we should not be over-condemning, over-judgmental about it at the same time, right? Amen. And the Lord is judge ultimately. Amen. And verse 4, who are you to judge the servant of God? the servant of another. 
or to his own master, he stands or he falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5, one person regards one day above another, and another regards every day alike. Each person may be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who eats does so to the Lord, for he gives thanks to Theos, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to Theos. Now, a lot of people use that to say that if you want to keep Sunday, you're doing that to the Lord. And therefore, you don't have to keep a particular day of the week, just whatever day you want to, whatever day you choose. But again, the word Sabbath is not here. The word holy day is not here. The word holiday is not here. The word fiesta or feast is not here. And what is the context? Eating and not eating. And it started out with eating or not eating vegetables. But then it, it starts changing in what he's talking about. He starts talking about days, whether you're eating a day or not eating a day. It's talking about fasting now. It goes from eating and not eating vegetables and meat, and it goes to actually talking about fasting, even though you don't see the word fasting, the context is absolutely clear, amen? The context, the wording, how many times it uses the word eat, how many times it uses the word meat and drink and so forth and so forth is very, very clear. It's talking now about whether you're fasting on a certain day or not fasting on a certain day. And you've got to also understand the background is that for the Israelites and the Jews in that day and time and even the Jews today, not only did you have the commanded fast of the Day of Atonement and the partial commanded fast of unleavened bread, but also the Jews have a fasting on the day that the temple was destroyed, the day that the first temple was destroyed, the day that the second temple was destroyed, and other events in history that some people will fast traditionally, even though it's not commanded. But traditionally, a lot of Jews, a lot of them, would be fasting on different several days throughout the year on the same day as everyone else. So when it talks about some people regard a day above another, and in the context of eating and not eating, it's talking about fasting. It's saying, don't judge or condemn that Jew over there if they are not fasting on the same day everybody else is fasting, and vice versa. If they want to fast on the day the temple was destroyed or another historical date, let them do it. They are convicted to do that. They are convinced to do that. They believe that that's something that they ought to do. Amen? On the first term that we thought it was term, it really wasn't, we fasted. And I asked the people in advance, let's fast these days for such and such amount of time. And we did that. But then we were just, when we discovered that the mistake in the calendar, that there was a 13th month that I did not realize about 
for this spring, we discovered we had not had parent yet. And I never did command a fast for the true parent of this year. I didn't feel compelled to. Personally, I didn't. I didn't feel led of the Lord to do that. Personally, I didn't. And I did not pronounce that. But yet, I know that some people may have probably did fast for true parents. And that's okay. That's good. Excellent. If you did that. But if you didn't fast, neither should we condemn you. For you were not instructed to, nor was you led to. Some person may, some people may have been led to. Fine and dandy. Fine and dandy in both situations. We should not judge our brothers and our sisters if they were compelled to or if they were not compelled to. You shouldn't judge them either. Amen. But if it's a commanded fast like the Day of Atonement, then absolutely the Bible says that if you do not do it, that you are accursed and that you have no part of the congregation. That is grounds for disfellowship and condemning as far as commanded fasting. But we're talking about voluntary fasting. And to try to twist this to talk about the seventh day, which is commanded, and holy days that are commanded, and just say you can ignore those commands, that is twisting of Scripture. Amen? That is major twisting of Scripture. But Babylon would twist this like everything. Amen. And in verse 7, for not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself, but rather for the Lord. Verse 8, for if we live, we live for the Lord. For if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And to this end, Christ died and lived again that we might be Lord both of the, he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. That doesn't mean that the dead know anything. But what it means is that he is God of all the dead, all the sleeping, and of all the living. In no way, shape, or form does it mean dead people are walking around underground or in heaven. So don't add to what it says. In verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? For fasting or not fasting out of tradition. Why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Philos. Now, we're not all going to stand at the white throne judgment at the end of the hundred years. No. But all of us will see Jesus, whether it's in the first resurrection or the second resurrection. Every human being that has ever existed will all see Jesus sooner or later. But that does not mean that we will all stand at a judgment seat in the same way as the people of the second resurrection. Okay? It may sound like that, but don't let one verse throw you off of the truth, okay? Remember, you have to consider the book of Revelation. You have to consider Matthew 25. 
you have to consider all verses in all the Bible. He can't allow one verse to throw you off of your true, correct understanding of Scripture. That, yes, we're all judged, but not in the same way, not in the same manner, and not at the same time. And because we're all judged, then symbolically, we all do stand at the judgment seat of Christ, even in the first resurrection. There is a verse that talks about the first resurrection as a day of judgment. But we are not going to be in a setting of a courtroom being judged in the same way the people at the White Throne Judgment will be. It's an entirely different setting. But we are all judged. We are all judged, but in a different manner, a different setting, and a different time. Now, in verse 11, it says, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every need, to bow to me in every tongue, to give praise to Theos. But it means right there that every one of us, sooner or later, we're all going to see Jesus. We're all going to see him sooner or later, regardless of the time, regardless of the resurrection. Amen. And I don't really believe that the wicked will give praise to Jesus. This way it sounds like it's saying. Does every time to give praise to Jesus? I don't believe that. Like, it'll be too late, and maybe they'll falsely give praise, that type of thing. I think sometimes Paul is wrong or whoever he's quoting from Isaiah 45. He's quoting Isaiah 45. How can you have a wicked person at the white throne judgment and they have lived their entire life wicked and they are right there at the last second and Jesus says, you are wicked, you have done wrong, these are your sins and I'm casting you to the lake of fire and you're going to die. Are they going to then at that point say, I love you, Lord, and I praise you, and I worship you? No, I don't think they're going to do that. I think that they're going to still be unrepentant for the last minute. I could be wrong. But people think that every word in the Bible is correct. It's not. It's not. And not every word in the Bible is Scripture. And not every word in the Bible is the, the word of God. This Bible is not the word of God. It is words written by man. The atheist is right. And the unbelievers are right. It is not the word of God. It is words written by man. But man wrote Sometimes what God said, and other times a man named Solomon wrote about how beautiful a woman's breast is. That's not the word of God. The song of Solomon is not the word of God. And when Paul said that it's a shame for a man to have long hair, that is not the word of God. 
That is the word of man. That is the word of Paul. That was Paul's opinion, and it was his wrong opinion. So we cannot say that every word in Scripture is the word of God, or that every word in Scripture is true and correct. I absolutely do not believe that every person who has ever lived, even Hitler, is going to praise God. I don't believe it. Maybe wrong. Maybe God will strike me with lightning later today. I don't know. But I do not believe that that's accurate and true. Maybe the Catholic Church added that in. Maybe it's a mistranslation. I don't know. But it doesn't match reality. It doesn't match common sense. It doesn't match the reality of wickedness. And if somebody's going to be thrown into that lake of fire, they are wicked. And they are wicked to the teeth. They are wicked beyond wickedness. Because that's the only person that's going to be thrown in there, is people of that wicked magnitude. Because if you've had this life and another life, and you have seen the government of God on this planet, and you have seen the angels, because you will see angels. Every person will see angels. When you're living in the millennium, you're going to see God on the throne. When you're on, if you live in the 100 years, you're going to see God on the throne in that 100 years. And it will be the government of God on this planet with true justice on this planet. And you're going to live for the entire 100 years. And if you still get thrown into the lake of fire at that time at the end of the 100 years, then you are an extremely filthy, wicked person. Extremely wicked. And if you're wicked to that extent, to where you stayed rebellious all the way up to the white throne judgment, then no. You're not going to be praising God. You're going to remain unrepentant all the way up to that last moment. That is the reality of it, the way I see it. Verse 12. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself. Absolutely, we'll all have to give an account of ourselves. To Theo. Verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore in the context about fasting, on non-commanded Jewish holidays that mourn the loss of the temple or about vegetarians, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stoning block in a brother's way. I know and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. If you think something is a sin, even if it's not, but you believe it is, in your mind and in your soul, it is wrong, it is unclean, it is a sin, then guess what? It is a sin to you. It might not be a sin to me if I'm strong in the Lord and have truth and have a true knowledge and a true understanding, then I might be able to get drunk. But if you think that it's a sin to get drunk, then it is a sin to you because you think it is, and therefore you're going against your conscience. You're going against what you believe to be the truth. And that is a sin to you. But it may not be to me. If I have liberty in Christ, 
to enjoy myself, and it's only food, and it's only drink, and I'm not hurting anybody or anything as long as I'm not living the life of an alcoholic. As no long as I'm as long as I'm not wasting my electric bill, or uh, taking food away from my child or my wife or my ministry. Amen. Amen. Now, when it says that everything is clean, that doesn't mean that everything is clean. Amen. It's not talking about drugs. It's not talking about about illegal drugs. It's not talking about cigarettes. It's not talking about homosexuality. Amen. So some people use this verse to say that Jesus said that nothing is unclean in itself. Therefore, I can smoke pot. I can do heroin. I can uh, be homosexual. I don't have to repent. I don't have to repent of anything. I can do anything I want to do. That is not what Paul really meant, nor what Jesus really meant. In the context, all meats, food, and vegetables is clean, except when we're talking about the halal mark of the beast. There is an exception to everything. There is. There is exception to everything. It is against God's law to murder. But if God tells you go and murder someone, you better go do it. God told people in the Bible, go do this. Amen. And it's a sin to overthrow the government or to disobey the government. It's a sin. But if God has ordained you as a revolutionary fighter to overthrow the government, as in the revolutionary war, when God did ordain people that came over here to America from England to overthrow the government, which is against the law of God, but God ordained them to do it. Amen? So there are different circumstances, different situations, whatever the will of God is. And it's not the will of God for us to eat things that are sacrificed to idols. Jesus said that, right? This is Paul talking right here. Jesus said in the book of Revelation chapter 2, twice, twice Jesus said in Revelation 2 that that he does not like that doctrine, however it was worded there, that, that he does not like that doctrine, that we can eat things sacrificed to idols. So no, not everything is clean. No, not everything is clean. Amen? If it has been sacrificed to the devil and dedicated to the devil and prayed with the devil's name, and then put a mark on the product to put the devil's name on it symbolically through that mark. And it's part of Sharia law, and it's part of the Antichrist, the son of perdition, taking over the world and enforcing Sharia law on the population. 
and defiling the population and corrupting the population and leading the population to the lake of fire. No, that halal meat is not clean. No. Absolutely not. I refuse to believe that there is nothing unclean. Halal means to defile. The word halal means to defile. So they took something that was clean and made it. Amen. But it was Jesus did clean it. Yeah. But then they made it unclean. Amen. So verse fourteen. I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Well that halal meat originally was clean the way God created it. But it was defiled. Defilement was brought upon it, and it became unclean. But it wasn't unclean of itself by nature. But now some things are unclean of itself by nature, like pot. Okay? So there are exceptions to the rule. But still, if you think sin is a sin, it's a sin to you. Verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food for him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is, uh, is for you a good thing to be spoken of as evil. And for the kingdom of Theos is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he who has who is in this way serves Christ is susceptible to Theos and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which will make for peace and the building up of one another and do not tear down the work of Theos for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but again, there are exceptions such as the halal, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is a good not to eat meat or to drink wine or by which your brother stumbles. In other words, if you're strong in the Lord, you know it's not wrong to drink. It's not wrong. But if your brother is weak and they don't understand this, then we should not be drinking in front of them because we're putting a stumbling block and they are wrongfully judging us and they are wrongfully condemning us. And therefore, we're helping that person bring a sin in their heart and in their mind. They don't realize they're sinning. They don't mean to be sinning. They think that they're judging us according to correct doctrine, but they're not. They're weak in Christ. They're still under legalism. They're still under traditional doctrine. And we are putting a stumbling block by exercising our liberty in Christ to drink in front of them, and we should not drink in front of them. Okay? And if they think it's wrong to eat meat, we should not eat meat in front of them. Amen? Now, these are general rules that we should try to uh, not offend our true brothers. Uh, but again, there are exceptions to the rule, okay? Because if it's dealing with vegetarianism and drinking, I might follow these rules listed here most of the time, but not always. And it depends on who. It is, and other things about that person, situations, time, and individuals. 
situations can vary. But when you get these people that says we can't eat pork, that is unclean, you know what they're doing when they say that? They're saying that Jesus did not cleanse meats and that the death of Jesus had no power or authority over cleansing and uncleansing food and that the blood of Jesus has no power to cleanse the animals of pork and shrimp and so forth. That is what they're saying. That's what they teach. And for a person like that, that's going beyond weakness. That's going beyond talking about vegetarians. That's going beyond legalism of drinking and not drinking. This is a person that's denying the blood of Jesus when they say we cannot eat pork. These are Muslims. These are wine-named people. These are vampires. This is exactly what God told me to call them years ago. He said, call these wine-named people vampires because that's exactly what they are. They drain the blood from the body of Christ. That's exactly what they are. That's exactly how you should look at these wine people. And we should judge them and we should condemn them. But we also need to be not over-judgmental and over-condemning. We've got to be able to give them the opportunity to learn the truth, the opportunity to learn the truth, to hear the truth. But once they hear it, once we present that truth to them and they reject it, then absolutely they become, should become to us as swine and no longer try to convince them. You don't have to prove it to them. Once you give them the evidence, once you give them the article, the flyer, the seed of truth, and they reject it, then they become swine to us. And then they are deserving of rebuke, strong rebuke, and total disfellowship and shame. Amen. And because they are going beyond simple things and they are totally denying the blood of Jesus and they are becoming antichrist. They become, they're going too far. And the book of what 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, somewhere in there, it says if they go too far, do not bless them or greet them. And some people go too far. Amen. And there are times to exercise our liberty. There are times to exercise our liberty. When it comes to the holy days, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Trumpets, and some of the other holy days, when we're supposed to be celebrating and the Bible encourages us to drink at that time, it does, I'm going to drink. And I don't care who don't like. Because there are times when we need to exercise our liberty in the Lord. And it's a holy day and the Bible encourages us to drink. I'm going to follow that, what the Bible encourages me to do at that time. And somebody don't like it, they can hit the highway. I don't care. And just telling you the truth. There are times to be appeasing to people. There are times to feed people with a baby bottle. Mm-hmm. And there are times to take away the milk and help the people grow up and tell it the way it is. 
Too many people are being fed the baby ball all the time, all the time, all the time, and never be given the meat, never be given strong words, never uh, telling it the way it is. And I'm, I'm, I'm tired of giving the baby ball. Amen? And, and if it's hot, I'm going to take my shirt off. I'm a man. There's nothing wrong with taking my shirt off. It is not against God's law. It is not against nature. It is not anti-Christian. It is not anti-decency. It is not anti-goodness or anti-righteousness or anti-holiness. It is not anti-family. It is not anti-God. It is not anti-Christ. It is natural and acceptable and good. Amen. And I don't care, care who it is. I'm going to exercise my liberty in the Lord to take my shirt off when I'm hot because my internal body is a furnace. I'm telling you, I burn up. And if you want to be over-condemning of me and over-judgmental of me, that is your mind. That is your immature mind. That is your legalism. That is your traditional doctrine. And that is your problem, not mine. Amen? Again, you you can't walk in my shoes. So you don't know how I feel. You don't know how hot, how much I just burn up. You don't know that. So how can you judge me? Amen. Now let's go to the book of James 4. James chapter 4. That's right after the book of Hebrews. James chapter 4. James 4, verse 6. Let's go from verse 6 to verse 12. James 4, verse 6. But he who gives a greater grace, therefore it says, Theos is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to Theos. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. But first you've got to submit to God. Then resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to Theos, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and cry, and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Which means there are times to cry for the laws, cry for deceived people, cry about the uh, injustice, lack of justice in the world. There are times to mourn and to cry about the situation of the reality of the wickedness in this world. And there are times we need to be fasting and crying out to the Lord for our families, our friends, the people in the church, 
so forth. And it says in verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will eventually, he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brother. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. In other words, we're supposed to be doers of the law. Amen? Isn't that exactly what it says? Yeah, yeah, do it. Amen. Because it says, but if you judge the law, in other words, if you're being overjudgmental, overcondemned, you're not a doer of the law. You're not loving that person. If you're being overjudgmental, overcondemned, then you are not doing the law of love, of treating people the way you want to be treated. But you're only being a judge of it. You're only judging. You're only overly judging, over condemning. That is what it's really saying. That is the meat of it. That is the spirit of it. Amen? Verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judges your neighbor? Now, again, if you read this one verse or one section, and no other section of the Bible, then you would be led to believe that we can never judge, and especially not within the church. But yet, in Corinthians, it says to cast out from among you those that are uh, involved in immorality, like the man that was with his dad's wife, I guess it was, or whoever it was, his dad's wife. So, and then also Paul said, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And what fellowship does light have with darkness? And that was in the context of needing to judge within the church. And even about taking the Passover communion were instructed in 1 Corinthians 11 to judge the body. Talking about judge one another, who you're taking communion with. Another verse of the Bible says don't take communion with devils. So. You've got to read the whole Bible. And yes, we should be judging left and right. If you never judge anybody, you're going to end up dead at an early age. You have to make judgment about who to get in the car with, who to be friends with, and everything else, and where to go to church at, and what to believe, and all kinds. You've got to be making constant judgments, constant. But what this is really, really saying in the spirit is don't be over-judgmental and over-condemning, always ready and eager to point the finger at every opportunity without thinking it through, without praying about it, without thinking about what, what might be the hidden circumstance and what is the true doctrine. Amen? Yes, we can judge and should. Bible says, don't you know you're going to judge angels? And just a verse or two away from that, it says, don't you know you're going to judge the world? We have to learn how to judge. We are going to be judges, and kings, and priests in the kingdom. We need to know how to judge. But we need to judge righteously, considering all the facts, correct doctrine, and the background of what's really going on. Amen? 
We should not be overjudgmental and condemning of people for physical disabilities. You know, at Walmart and some of the other stores, they have these electric uh, carts where people can ride in a cart through the store. It's there for the people that need that. And sometimes you can see people actually walking, and they're walking fine, and they get in one of these carts and drive around the store. And sometimes you'll see them get out of the cart and walk a few steps to get some groceries and put it in the buggy. And you may be at first led to believe that this is just a lazy person. They don't really need this. They're not on crutches. They're not in a wheelchair. You may at first be led to believe this is just a lazy person that just wants to use this cart. But the truth is, a lot of these people, yes, they are lazy. That's the truth. <laughs> but, but, the truth is also that a lot of these people is that they have back problems or leg problems or feet problems that you don't know about. And they may appear healthy, and yes, they can walk, and yes, they don't have crutches or a wheelchair, but hey, Walmart is a huge, huge, huge store. I don't know how many football fields it is. And by the time you get from one end of the store to the other end of the store, there are people that by the time they get halfway done with their groceries, that's it. They're not going to make it back to their car. That's it. They're going to fall on the floor. They're going to be stuck. They won't be able to move another muscle unless they did take the car. And if you don't have hardly any places to sit down in the store, you might find one seat in the middle somewhere or in the back somewhere and a few seats up front, but there are people that look like they're not disabled and they might not be completely disabled, but they do have some health problems where they do need that cart because eventually somewhere along the line, somewhere in that store, that person, that human body is going to break down and they need that cart. So we have to be careful about judging people. We need to think, oh, that person is getting the car. Let them have it. I don't need it. Let them have it. And if somebody really needs it worse, let those two people fight it out. That's not my business. I ain't got no business there, right? That ain't my business. Stay out of other people's business. Amen? Stay out of other people's sex lives. Stay out of other people's business and out of other people's way they dress or don't dress or drink or don't drink or eat or don't eat. Stay out of other people's business and worry about your own life, your own sins, your own heart, your own body, your own mind. Amen? Amen. So don't be over-judgmental, over about physical disabilities and, and people's weight. A lot of people are over-condemning, over-judgmental about people that weigh a lot, but they might not know all of the, the situation. Some people are on medicines 
that greatly increase their weight just by the medicine that they're taking. That is reality. It happens. A lot of people are overweight just because of the medicines they take and they have to take it and there's no way other way around it. Other people is genetics. You can tell by people's parents if they have heavy parents that they're heavy themselves or if they have skinny parents, they're skinny themselves. Genetics play a huge part in the size and the shape and the height and the weight of a person. And disabilities, they might not, uh, they might have a disability that prevents them from walking a lot, exercising a lot, and they might not appear to have that kind of disability, but you don't know what their needs feel like, what their back feels like, what their feet feels like, what their heart feels like, what their lungs feel like. You don't know. You don't walk in that person's shoes. So we have to be careful about being over-condemning and over-judgmental about people that we don't know what the situation is. Same thing with uh, mental disabilities and learning disabilities uh, and speech problems and education and, uh, and people that have a lack of education. There's a lot of people that are very, very wise, but yet they only went to the third grade or sixth grade or ninth or tenth or something. We can't judge people by how educated they are. Not everybody's the same. Not everybody had the same parents, the same school, the same background, the same thing that's going on in their life at that time. And we're all individuals. And there are some people that have a lot of wisdom, but no education. And I think wisdom is a whole lot more important than knowing how to multiply or knowing all your math or what 12 times 12 is. And you don't learn wisdom by going to school. You learn wisdom by living life. Amen. You have to be careful about judging women that wear pants. Some people read that verse in the Bible that says that men are not to wear women's clothing. And it makes sense that it's vice versa as well, even though it doesn't say it vice versa, but it makes plenty of sense. That women are not to wear men's clothes. I believe that. I believe women should not wear men's clothes and men should not wear women. I believe that's the will of God. Men wear men's clothes, women wear women's clothes. I believe that's God's will. But at the same time, if those pants are made for women, I'm not going to wear them. I'm not going to wear women's pants, right? I'm not going to go to the women's section buy these women's pants. So if they're made for women, it's women's clothes. We shouldn't call women's pants men's clothes. If you go by that same standard, then all of us should be wearing dresses, every one of us. And men should wear dresses if we go by that same standard. Because originally, Maybe not originally, but at some point of time, in Jesus' day, men did wear dresses. Men and women both did. So, I mean, they all wear robes that went down to their ankles. It was a dress. Yeah. They didn't put on one leg at a time. They might have called it robes, but today, somebody dressed like that, they've called it dress. 
Amen. So if you go by this, that standard, that a dress looks like a dress or a robe looks like a dress and a pant looks like a pant, then we all need to be wearing dresses. And you know we shouldn't be. My point is this. Women's pants are women's pants. Don't condemn them for wearing women's pants. And don't condemn people for wearing shorts. Unless it's short, 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 shorts, then I don't think they need to be doing that. But just wearing regular shorts is not a sin. And nothing nothing wrong with seeing somebody's knees. Knees are not a sexual part of your body. And they're not sexy either. And I don't think that we need to be condemning women for showing their knees uh, and their lower legs. I think people need to not be so legalistic. Mm-hmm. You might disagree, but I'm sure I'm uh, very right about this. And a lot of people judge people for taking medicine. People do. People judge people for taking medicine. A lot of people now believe that it's witchcraft to take medicine. There are a lot of people teaching that. Lots of people teaching that. And that's foolishness. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous to believe that it's witchcraft to go to the doctor or to take medicine or go to the hospital. If that was true, then you would not be allowed by God to ever, ever, ever take anybody to the hospital or doctor for any reason, even if they was having a stroke or heart attack, or even if they would cut themselves really, really bad, or even if they got shot. Because you wouldn't be able to take them to the hospital if that is witchcraft. If it's witchcraft, then there is no exceptions to that. If it is witchcraft, there is no exceptions for witchcraft ever. And if medicine and doctors and hospitals are witchcraft, then you're not allowed to seek medical attention for your wife, your husband, your children, your grandchildren, or anyone, not even for yourself. It's foolishness. It's a stupid doctrine. We should not judge people for having to take medicines. We should not judge people, a man, for having more than one wife. It's in the Bible. Moses had more than one wife. Many, 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 many men of God, David did. And many other men of God in the Bible, not even one time, condemns a man for having more than one wife. Not even once. And if God does not condemn them, then why should we? I know that does not match your traditional doctrines, but it sure matches the Bible. Amen? Amen. We have to be careful about condemning people that God does not condemn. If God doesn't condemn them, we shouldn't condemn them. Amen? Now remember one time Years ago at a a church I used to go to, a Babylonian church. And it was what I was supposed to be doing at that time. You may condemn me and judge me for that. I went to a lot of Babylonian churches, but it was what I needed at that time. I needed to 
to sit on the back row and sometimes the middle row and live life a little bit, experience life, see what Babylon was like, even though I knew they was wrong about a lot of stuff. But I got a lot from it, and I learned a lot. And I needed, at the time, to be around somebody who was at least trying to live for the Lord, even if it was in incorrect doctrine. I didn't have no Pastor Tim to learn from or or to have fellowship with or to go to his church or anything like that. That was only Babylon for me. And at one church, I remember there was a woman that she wanted to sing really bad. She felt like that God was telling her to sing, that she needs to be singing. But the people that was leading the service, they would always ask different people a different person, a different man, a different woman, you come up and sing. So-and-so, you come up and sing. So-and-so, you come up and sing. And they would just overlook this one woman every time, never, ever asking her for her turn to come up and sing. And, of course, that woman was furious. She was angry. She was upset. And there were some other people taking notice as well especially because this woman was running her mouth, you know, saying this wasn't right, not fair. And, of course, it did seem unfair. And some of the people were agreeing with her that it was unfair. And the pastor heard about it. People were grumbling and mumbling about it, that he was being unfair about it. But he got up one day and he said something similar to this. He said, that people just need to let him do his job. That he knows what he's doing. And you know what? He was absolutely right. He was absolutely right about it. It may have seemed like it was a wrong decision or unfair to other people and to that woman and other people as well, but I knew what was going on. The whole time, from the beginning to the end, I knew why he wasn't letting her sing. And I fully agreed with it the whole time. Other people had a problem with it, but I totally agreed and understood why. Because I had a little bit of the background information, what was going on. Other people didn't. But I knew this woman, and I knew her heart, her mind, her life, and what was really going on and what the pastor's purpose was. And totally agreed. And like he said, let the pastor do his job. He knows what he's doing. Sometimes we may think that we know better better than someone else. And sometimes we might, but sometimes we might not. But we need to let pastors do their jobs and and use the wisdom that God has given them. And a lot of pastors have been on the job for many years. A lot of pastors 
have been well-seasoned, and this was a very well-seasoned pastor that I'm talking about. He had been in the ministry for a long time, and he did know what he was doing. He had learned a lot of lessons along the way, had experienced a lot of things, dealt with a lot of people, uh, been pastor of different churches. So he was truly an elder and had learned a lot from God over the years. And he knew things about the way God works that a lot of people didn't know. And I understood what was really going on and how the spirit of God was moving in him. And I could sense it and discern it very, 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 very strongly, but nobody else could discern it. But we do have to be careful about uh, overjudging pastors and lay members and lost people and other people. Now, again, and I'll shut up, but one last time, I don't want anybody to think that I'm giving a license for people to sin or I'm condoning sin. I'm absolutely not doing that. But my overall point is that we are not the over-condemning and over-judgment. And it's as simple as that. And that concludes the sermon. But I will talk a little bit about Syria. So we see what's going on in the news. That NATO, not just America, but NATO, just like it was said in the prophecy about NATO specifically and America and Trump, attacked Syria. Now, of course, they have not yet attacked directly Assad, so the prophecy has not yet been completely fulfilled, but we are definitely getting closer and closer and closer to to that every day. Amen. This is the second time that Trump has attacked Syria. And this time, they're saying it was twice as many missiles. So it was an increase. It was uh, not a whole lot of targets. It was not as widespread as it should have been, Trump is being held back, they say, by the Secretary of Defense. Uh, I don't know if it's true or not because there's a lot of rumors that are just not true, a lot of fake news. It's hard to know what to believe being reported in these news, even in the Internet news and conspiracy websites and mainstream websites and so forth. It's hard to know what to believe among any of these websites and news. But a lot of people are reporting that Secretary of Defense Mattis is disagreeing with Trump, and which doesn't really matter except for Trump does get advice from different people, and some of the people are saying that the strikes should only be very limited in nature because we're afraid 
of what Iran might do or what Russia might do, that this might come out to be World War III. But yet other people are advising him that we should take the risk no matter what because it's a serious, very extremely serious situation in Syria and we need to stand for righteousness. We need to stand against wickedness. So he's getting different advice from different people. So he took the advice to make it a limited strike to begin with. But at the same time, Trump realizes and his advisors realize that he may have to strike again and not only that, but just with a limited strike, Russia or and or Iran may counter strike at any second, any minute, any day. And that's why ships continue to head toward Syria. They're not pulling back. More equipment is on the way. More ships is on the way. They do expect that Russia could counter-strike at any time. They have threatened to do that. And if Assad comes out with chemical weapons again, in the next few days or in the next couple of weeks, then Trump has already said that he is prepared to strike again. We have not seen the end of this by any means. Do not be fooled. Do not be deceived to think that it's over with, that we did a one-time strike and that'll be it for another year. That's not accurate thinking. Their anger, Russia is extremely, extremely angry. I've never seen Russia this angry in my entire life. They are extremely fighting mad, spitting mad, spitting mad. And they could launch a counterattack at any time. This thing is not over with. We've got to continue to stay alert and don't be tricked by the devil that the prophecy is not going to come to pass. It's going to come to pass and it's not a long way off. It could be weeks, but it is definitely not years. We have to continue to prepare, stay faithful about the prophecies of Jesus Christ. These are not the prophecies of Pastor Tim. They are the prophecy of Scripture. Amen. Stay alert. Continue to be faithful to the truth all the way to the end, regardless of all stumbling blocks and obstacles and trials and snares and traps of the devil. The devil will try to pull you away from this ministry. The devil will try to pull you away from believing the prophecies and the devil would try to pull you away from uh, the reality of the need to flee and the need to prepare. Got to remain faithful of it in the truth to the very end, no matter how, how hard it gets. And Russia is claiming that the chemical strikes or the chemical attack in the masses in the uh, name of that town, what's that suburb? Starts with a D, Dubai, something like that, or Duma, or something like that. 
Russia saying there's chemical attacks in that suburb of Damascus is fake. It didn't happen. That's stupid. Don't fall for that 666 propaganda. That's what it is. It is 666 propaganda. Don't be fooled by communist propaganda and Islamic propaganda. It was not fake. Those chemical attacks were real. It happened, and it was Assad that did it. He is wicked to the core. He is murdering people. He is torturing people. He is uh, keeping his people under bondage, and he is totally wicked and totally deserves these military strikes and more. We should have done much, much more, and we'll eventually do more strikes. It is not over by any means. It is only beginning. Amen. So if anybody has any questions about anything I've said today, any, if you need any clarification, um, or if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me. Feel free to email me. Feel free to use the contact form on the website if you don't have my email. Uh, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. And if you have questions, please feel free to contact me. And I'm not over territorial like people think I am or over-oppressive. I'm willing to answer questions and hear concerns as long as it's a true concern. Amen. And um, I do encourage people to uh, take some time out today to rest and relax. And what I like to do on the seventh day is to watch a faith-based movie. I know they're all made by Babylon, but there's no faith-based movies made by a true follower of Christ. So there's no such thing. So if I'm going to watch a faith-based movie, it's going to have to be a Babylonian made, and some of them are really, really good, and a lot of them don't have any false doctrine. A lot of them don't have any false doctrine, and then there's also a lot that do have false doctrine. But I know when I see it, amen, and I'm not going to be deceived by it. I am. I do try to be careful what I watch, how, and and uh, when, and so forth. But by watching a movie, it helps me to relax and to calm my spirit, which is the reason for the seventh day, is to relax. And a movie helps me do that. Uh, and I will even confess to you that uh, sometimes on the seventh day, I will even watch like a 30-minute uh, old-school comedy show from my childhood that's not faith-based because it helps me to laugh and to relax. And yes, the seventh day is about holiness and worship of God, but that doesn't mean we have to be on our knees praying 24-7. The other reason for the seventh day is not only worship and praise and learning and holiness, but also relaxation, relaxation and rest. 
And if watching just a 30-minute comedy is going to help me to rest and relax, then it's fulfilling the purpose of the day. And I'm a person that gets pretty wound up, you know. Y'all, every one of you know that. And I need a laugh. And the Bible says that laughter is good medicine. And I need some medicine, baby. <laughs> Amen. And I don't want to be over-legalistic about the Sabbath day. Amen. I want to relax. It is a, it is a holiday. It is a weekly holiday. And it's not built, this day is not built to be a burden. Amen. It's meant to be a gift, not a burden. The Sabbath day and the commandments of God should not be a burden to us. That's not the purpose. Amen. But, of course, I am careful about what I watch, especially on the seventh day. I'm even more careful about what I watch. Don't get me wrong. Okay, I'll let you go. And thank you for listening. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your understanding and for your love and for your prayers. Amen. So I'll see you next week. And until then, may Jesus bless you in amazing ways. And the congregation said, Amen. Amen.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.